The world is in a climate crisis and all industries must do their part to reach zero emissions. Maritime trade is critical to today's society, but is also responsible for 2.8% of all greenhouse gases. A future where global trade reaches zero is possible, but how do we actually get there? I'm Laura Jacobson, Zero North's Chief Purpose Activist and an expert in sustainable shipping. In Navigating Zero, I'm sitting down with thought leaders to explore the inner workings of global trade, its massive impact on our society, and the obstacles it faces navigating its way to zero. Enterprises that move cargo across the sea are well-placed to influence the direction of sustainable practices in shipping. They are the first movers, testing new technologies and implementing new practices so that change can happen. This commitment to making an impact is also what inspires second and third movers. If we're going to get to zero, we need to support the first movers who lead by example. My guest today is Jan Dieleman, president of Cargill Ocean Transportation. Cargill is a global food, agriculture, and bioindustrial specialist. Cargill was founded 155 years ago and currently operates in 70 countries and regions. It is the largest privately held company in the United States in terms of revenue. Jan has been with Cargill for over 24 years and has seen regulations and sustainability practices come and go. He has extensive experience in supply chain management at Cargill, but also works tirelessly towards sustainable and green initiatives as chair of the Global Maritime Forum and through his board role at Rightship. But let's go back to 1999 when Jan first started his career. Jan, what was the industry approach to green global trade at that time? I think if you take the late 90s, early 2000s, that was when China really started to be a factor. And you started seeing that in commodity markets, you start seeing that in freight markets. And what that meant, I think, was that there wasn't really a strong focus on saving fuel or emissions. It, it was all around making sure we're moving products around. So that was done in, in that way. I think it was also the time where there wasn't really transparency, I think it was an important piece. And and I think it was also, the supply chain was much more siloed, I would say. Certain things were really considered as an owner's matter. Some were really labeled as a charter's matter. And that's where kind of it stopped. And if you look at today, that's completely different, right? If you talk about transparency, you talk about drivers, you talk about also global trade that is not booming as fast as, as it was in, in those days. I'm curious to know about when you noticed that decarbonization policies and regulations started to have an influence on the business that you do. Within Cargo, we've always had a focus on what we tend to call doing the right thing. And that includes very much an environmental component. I think the reality is in the beginning, that wasn't that clear. There was no discussions on CO2 decarbonization, et cetera, et cetera. And what I remember vividly is, is a moment, and that was in, in 2016, actually, when we as Ocean Transportation start going through a strategy review. And this was a period when shipping was actually not making any money and everything was complicated. And the two things that were, were standing out was one, is that digitalization we felt was this time really going to come to the industry and actually disrupt us. And the other thing is we felt that something, and we called it green at the time, and nowadays people call it more decarbonization, there was something going on in that area. And 
this was the time when in the Paris Agreement, shipping was excluded because it was a hard to abate sector like two of the other ones. And that's when we started to really focus on measuring our carbon footprint. Because to be honest, before that, we didn't have an idea what our carbon footprint in shipping actually was. And we started creating the transparency. We started putting it out and we made some mistakes and we improved it and we started to learn a lot. And that's also the time when we actually started dedicating some resources to, to this and trying to somehow figure out what this could mean. And I think we were early on it, but... I don't think we really grasped what we were really looking at at that time. And that, of course, has evolved tremendously over the last five, six years. It's important to recognize the magnitude of Cargill's business and its influence on the market. Their fleet is one of the largest dry bulk operators with over 600 vessels and has over 100 years of experience developing relationships and pathways across the globe. When Cargill acts... People watch and listen. Other organizations see their successes and failures too. Cargill is truly a first mover and market influencer. In June 2023, Jan told Tradewinds that one of the reasons Cargill started ordering methanol-fueled vessels was to make sure that they made the first move. And one of the things that they wanted to see was that other people would follow. I wonder how being a first mover impacts Cargill's business. We look at ourselves and we know that we are a leader in this industry, right? And if you're a leader in the industry, it also means having that comes with a responsibility just to, to take some of these things on and try to make a difference. And this is by no means trying to just dictate what other people need to do or should be doing. But I think if you want to be a leader, you need to also lead in the more difficult topics. And decarbonization is clearly one of them. And I think what we're trying to do is, is somehow use our scale to also just make change and to also give some ideas wings early on. And, and that's what we can do. I do think, and, and we had this discussion recently, actually internally as well, you cannot be a first mover on everything all the time. And of course, we would like to see some more people joining us and putting some risk on the table, right? Because I think that's what, in the end of the day, this is all about. If you want to move an industry, you need to somehow under write certain things, new initiatives where it is not that clear that the return is as per your normal business. And I think it has helped us a lot. And I think looking back, I, I would do it again and again, because I think being a leader, especially in the decarbonization space, has given us so much opportunities because a lot of the ideas actually come to you, right? And if you're out there willing to make a difference, you actually start seeing new ideas and things that you on your own will never think about. And I think that's been a big win for us as well from a business perspective is that by being out there, you learn a lot, you see a lot. And with that, you can actually start, start making a difference. So let's just take a step back for a minute and look at the main hurdles that the industry is facing and what is really changing the practices towards a greener future. I see this as a journey and along the journey, there's new kind of obstacles uh, showing up. And I think the next one that we're having today is that we just simply cannot rely on, on leaders or front runners or whatever you want to call companies like ours. And I really want to stress like ours because there's also a lot of other people on, on this. And I don't want to just take credit ourselves only for this. Um, but we can't do it on our own. And now you also need a regulator to follow. And, and we start seeing that. Unfortunately, 
we start seeing that a little bit on a regional basis, which is not ideal, but at least it's a good starting point. But it's clear that the regulator is now the one that someone has to make sure that that whole tail in the industry, because this is a very fragmented industry with a lot of players, that everybody gets uh, somehow upped on the minimum standards. And I think that is very important here, just to make sure that the regulatory framework is also making sure this industry continues to be investable. And, and I think today, with all the uncertainties, just relying on the private sector, I think we're just not going to get there, to be very frank with you. There's certainly consumerism that drives global trade, but then there's also the consumers who will demand that there is green global trade. The EU is really leading the way with the EU ETS and EU fuel. But how is that going to change the way the industry operates when the IMO is not making this a global policy? It's another factor that is going to make things a lot more complex going forward. And I think shipping in a way, uh, people might not like what I say, but it's been a very simple kind of industry in the end of the day, right? There was only a few factors. It was globally regulated and the minimum standards were, you could argue, probably not that high. That is now changing. And now you get things like the ETS. And to be honest, for a company like ours, we welcome it first of all, because I think it at least gets us on a path of putting a price on carbon, which we all know that is needed to get through the transition. But also for a company like ours, with the capabilities that we have, we are probably the ones that are best positioned to deal with this complexity. So also from that point of view, it sets us a little bit apart from some of our competitors, where in a very simple industry, it's very difficult to differentiate yourself. But if you start talking about pricing carbon and, and trying to avoid carbon, well, that is not something I think that every single company has the resources to do. So that is also something that, that we are looking at very much. But it's clearly going to have impact. It's going to have impact on where certain ships will end up. It will probably have some overtime have uh, influences on, on what products will get moved around the world. So I think the industry is not just going to see an increased cost of moving things around, but I think it will also change very much the way the businesses run going forward. If we think of shipping, as Jan says, as a simple institution that has complex demands put upon it, we may get a glimpse into the challenges the industry faces moving forward. Navigating to zero is not straightforward. We're not going to get there overnight, and we will make some mistakes along the way. So what are we missing? What should the industry be paying attention to as potential ways to solve these complex problems? I think on the zero carbon fuels, there is still... The question on the fuel availability, I think that is still something that is not 100% clear, but it's also the pricing. It's also how how does this somehow link to the other industries? Because I think we do need to realize as an industry that we're not decarbonizing in a vacuum. We are decarbonizing with the rest of the world and, and fighting for the, the same solution somehow. There's a lot of uncertainty there. So I think that is still not very, very clear. If we would have a clearer pathway on the price on carbon or whatever regulation that might be on minimum standards, I think that would make the industry a lot more investable. Because if you're an owner today, you're basically making a decision on something that you think that might happen or might stick, but the regulator is still not really helping you in that respect. So I think that piece on the regulator now having to follow, I think it's a very important next piece in the in the puzzle 
to getting to zero in this industry. And you've talked about the advantages of owners or what they have to do. But do you see there's particular advantages that you have as a ship operator and a commodity owner as well? The advantage we have is clearly our size, right? And, and we use our size and we use our size to somehow influence minimum standards, which, which we think is important and that's something we can do. And this is something that we've done in the past as well. If you look at safety, right? And if you look at rideship, I think is a clear example where three big charters at some point came together and said, you know what, the minimum standards are just not good enough. We need to make sure that this becomes a safer industry and you can get critical mass and then standards do change. I think one of the other things that we do struggle with sometimes is because we're an operator, we're also depending on a lot of people and you are depending on the ships which are available. You are depending on the flows which you have to move. And I think what has been a big learning for us over the last five, six years is to really start focusing on the things that you can control. And there's certain things you have to somehow accept that you simply cannot control. And that's sometimes very frustrating. But if you really double down on the things that you can control, that makes life a lot easier. We've had instances a couple of years ago where a lot of owners were very skeptical on investing in certain technologies to save fuel. And We've come in quite a few times and said, okay, if you're not willing to take the risk, then we are willing to take the risk. And we put down the capital and we get the savings back through the fuel savings. And and that's, I think, where you as a bigger company can also, and an operator, even if you don't own the ships 100% and you don't control them 100%, you can still influence a lot. And I think that's what we've been trying to do a lot. And I think also, as a consequence, the relationships that we've had with owners over the last five years have changed tremendously. And and I said this in the beginning where initially everything was very clear. This is the owner, this is the charterer. These lines are getting blurred, right? We are asking questions to the owner now, which never were asked, right? Do you have internet on board of ships? Because we think it's important for human welfare, but it's also important to get the data of the ships, right? And we are getting asked questions from our customers and say like, but why did you take this ship and why is the emissions uh, A or B or C? That's a fascinating kind of development, I think, of, of what we've seen in the last five years is that all these things start overlapping. And it also means that people actively need to work together. And it's not just a responsibility that you can say, well, decarbonizing shipping sits with the owners. Uh, they should do whatever and uh, let me know when you're ready. I think that doesn't work anymore. Now, if we just step into the future, what does the future look like? You've been a strong advocate for sustainability in the industry. And so I want to touch upon that a little bit. You talked about your role as a as an operator and as someone who has influence because of your size. But I'm wondering what organizations like the Global Maritime Forum and the Maersk McKenney Moller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping, what is their role in guiding this green transition? I think, and this is a little bit the approach that we have taken here a couple of years back where we really felt that it wasn't just about Cargill making a move or Cargill doing the right thing. We really felt that we had a role to play to transition the industry. And I think you can only do that when you find platforms where the industry is getting together. And I think it's tremendously important for organizations like the GMF to to be there. And and if you look what success they've had over, over the last years. And it's also because... In the traditional way how the shipping industry has been set up, in all fairness, the charter or the end user didn't really have a voice. 
And I think that's been problematic because the demands are now coming from the end user and they don't somehow have a forum to to express those views and, and express somehow the commitment. And I think that has been the power of the Global Maritime Forum where you get like-minded people together from different subsectors, right? Sometimes from containers or from bulk or from, from tankers. And to really say, you know what, actually, we need to do something about this. And this is around decarbonization, which uh, we all know is by, by far the largest topic. But it goes also to things like human sustainability, right? If you look at what happened around the seafarer around COVID, that's just not acceptable. And I think people like us making that statement and say, we think it's not acceptable. We need to change. But we're also willing to be part of the change instead of just hiving it off to somebody else in the, the supply chain to, to go figure it out. I think it's been tremendously important. And so I think it's created this momentum of, of doing things. And I think that's what I like about the Global Maritime Forum. It's not just about talking, but about doing things. And you see all the initiatives that have come off that, right? We've got the Poseidon Principles, we've got the Sea Cargo Charter, you've got the Getting to Zero, you've got the Green Corridors, and I can keep on going and All Aboard Alliance, and you can keep on going and going. And I think it's those things that you create platforms for people to to collaborate. And I think the beauty is then the next step is that you can actually connect those willing people in the private sector, sometimes with some, some public sector, and really start making some of these changes implementable. And I think it was a void that was in the industry. And I think the GMF and also the Maersk Institute, and, and you can talk about GCMD in Singapore playing that exact same role, uh, that has been filled by, by those organizations. I do remind people, five, six years ago, when I was talking decarbonization or, or, or even mentioned the word, people were looking at me and said, like, but this is never going to happen. It's so complicated, it's shipping. And look where we're finding ourselves, right? Five, six years down the road. I think everybody's now struggling a little bit. So what does it mean for me? And what do I need to do? And who's going to pay for what? But I think the narrative has completely changed, which I think is partly because of organizations like the GMF, like the Maersk Institute, and also the GCMD, and I'm probably forgetting another five, six of them. The conversations that the industry is having about sustainability have radically changed. In the first episode of Navigating Zero, Richard Mead, editor-in-chief of Lloyd's List, painted a picture of how shipping has changed over time. And more realistic discussions about the gaps is a notable step forward. In many ways, it's influencers like Jan who convince and inspire others to point in the same direction. So what are his hopes and ambitions for a sustainable future? I think it's not a surprise to people that uh, I'm personally very motivated by making this industry a lot more sustainable. I, I think it's a tremendous industry, right? And uh, I got to know it in the early 2000s for the first time and I got hooked to the industry. And I think this industry has had a lot of bad press in, in many ways. And I think for the right reasons. And I think it's just fantastic to to somehow be able to look back on a career at some point and say, you know what, I've actually been able to have installed a bit and helped a bit a, a positive change. So I think that is a tremendous driver for me. I think decarbonization, we all know, we have a crisis in the world, right? So instead of just looking at somebody else to, to solve it, I think we all have a responsibility to do what we can to somehow have an impact there as well. And I find myself in a, in a very privileged position, to be honest with you, where I am leading a relatively large business where you can actually have a lot of impact. And I, I'm trying to seize that as much as I can. And OK, in the meantime, you still need to be running a profitable business, of course. And that's just something that you just need to manage. But I, I think you can do both. And 
I think that is what's driving me personally, that I really think that big business can have actually a big impact. And a little thing that we can do saves a tremendous amount of carbon, right? And I think that that is driving me, you know, these things and trying to use the scale somehow to the good as well. And, and scale is not always looked up as, uh, as, as a positive, but I think in some of these transitions, I think it can be a tremendous force uh, for change and we should be using that. In order to have a sustainable shipping industry, it's important for us to also make sure that young people are joining the industry. And so I wonder if there's just some things that you could say to future uh, generations to join shipping and why it's an important industry to be part of. In the beginning of my career, if you had to explain what you were actually doing, uh, it, it didn't get a lot of traction, to be honest with you. A lot of people were like, what is this all about, right? And, and I see now I've got two kids and we recently, um, we did this project where we put this massive wind wings on board of ships and we had a nice video and a big campaign around it. And my son actually saw it and, and he came to me and he said, Daddy, this is actually pretty cool what you're doing and you actually start having an impact. And it's those little things I think are just great. And if I just look back at our organization, by taking the lead on some of these topics in the agenda, by being out there, willing to be part of of the solution, right? Not just say what is all wrong, but really trying to to somehow contribute and make a change. We're also getting a lot of phone calls and emails and, and whatever from people outside the industry that are actually starting to see that this is an industry that is actually in transition and is actually a bloody cool industry to work in. So I think that is something that we really uh, have seen. And I think we, we should really really try to instill that because as i said earlier the maritime industry is a hugely important industry and i think we've seen that through covid right the fact that we've been able to still feed nine billion dollars of uh, people in in a situation like that is is it's all because of the maritime industry not falling apart right and and i think that those are things that people start to see and if you combine that with an agenda where we're going away from the hiding it in the shadows and bringing it out there, create the transparency and, and trying to harness somehow also the force into a positive change. I, I, I can see this industry having a, a very bright uh, future, to be honest with you. My key takeaways from my conversation with Jan are the first movers started their journey three years ago. What's different now is that regulations are forcing others to move also. It's going to be interesting to see how this will change the sustainability landscape in our industry. Conversations are happening and actions are being taken. What's next is that conversations need to happen at a more global level. As Jan said, change is very regional at the moment. We need it to be wider. The industry still needs clarity, clarity of direction and on policy and motivation. This is starting to happen, but much more needs to be done now. Overall, making more people work together is the next step. If you're going to take anything away from this podcast, remember this. We should be watching the increased number of regulations carefully as the industry is forced to move. The conversations that we're having regionally need to go global. And the industry needs more clarity to be able to reach zero. These three things will enable the green transition and help us face the ever-changing challenges in this exciting and dynamic industry. Thank you so much to Jan Dieleman for joining me today. And thank you for listening to Navigating Zero, Global Trade's powerful wave of change. If this conversation has inspired you, please follow us on your podcast app of choice for more fascinating discussions on how we reach zero. Bye for now.